start the new year with you, I'd ask uh, we continue our worship here. Turn to Acts chapter 12, please. Acts chapter 12. And we're going to focus our time this morning on two verses from Acts chapter 12, and that's going to be verse 2 and verse 23. So if you'd please turn there and then stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 12, verse 2, Luke writes, And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Now to verse 23. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Heavenly Father, we just give you this time and we ask for you to bring glory to your holy name through this time. And This is a weighty topic, Lord, but uh, we know we have the encouragement of the word. I pray if there are some here today who do not know you, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in their hearts, that you would save their everlasting soul. Because you are worthy of their praise as well as ours. So it's a delight to give it to you this morning, and we just ask that you would be blessed by the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <coughs> a few weeks ago, we went through this 12th chapter. We looked at all 25 verses as it's one big narrative account, but afterwards, we determined uh, the elders, Chris, Thomas, and I, to come back to this account and highlight the fate of two of its main characters. Two different men who experienced two different deaths. Two men who had two different destinies. Two men who have begun to and will continue to live out their lives in two different destinations. The Apostle James, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and King Herod Agrippa I, an unbeliever, a rejecter, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Luke writes in verse 2, King Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Then in verse 23, at a later date, after receiving the praise and adoration of his fellow man, the text says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck or smote Herod. He struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And the text says he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So right here in this 12th chapter, you have the death of a believer and the death of an unbeliever. And that's what we're going to look at over these next couple of weeks. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the death of a believer. What happened to James the moment his head was separated from his body? And what was his eternal life thereafter look like? What did it look like that moment? What is it going to look like? And then this morning, we're going to look at King Herod Agrippa. What happened to King Agrippa or King Herod Agrippa when his organs began to fail? That moment when his heart stopped beating, that moment when his lungs stopped taking in air, that very moment his worm-infested earthly body ceased to function as it had all the way up to verse 22. Let's consider that moment this morning, what that looked like, and then what his whole eternity thereafter will look like. Now, even though we may go a skosh long this morning, uh, there's no way we're going to be able to cover every detail regarding death in one sermon. We just can't do it. We can't even do it next week, in our time next week. But I want to at least hit the main events here, and I want to start by giving you two reasons for the need to consider the death of an unbeliever. Because there's universal application for everyone here today, both the Christian and the non-Christian alike. First reason, to equip the believer in Christ to better understand, explain, and accurately warn others about that which is to come. This is what's known as the doctrine of personal eschatology, or eschaton, or the study of last things, end times. And when we put personal in front of it, we're referring to the last things of an individual's life, the last days of life, both life here on this earth 
and then for an eternity thereafter. Everyone you know is going to die in some form or fashion. And you and I ought to be ready to answer what happens to a person when, uh, when a person, uh, give an answer for when a person begins to die or has already perished from this earth. We ought to be better equipped to tell people how they can then avoid one destiny in favor of, of another or choose one destiny in favor of another. We have to be able to rightly articulate why the good news of the gospel is such good news and exactly what's at stake here. We need to know this stuff if everyone we know is going to die, right? That's number one, equip the believer. Number two, the second reason for looking at the death of an unbeliever this morning, and that is, to f- uh, faithfully and clearly declare the truth of God's word as it pertains to the eternal destiny of both the unbeliever and the believer, so that no unbeliever, either here this morning or listening online, has any excuse when they stand before a holy and righteous judge to give an account for why they did not believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want this to be crystal clear for you. I want this to be crystal clear. No ambiguity, no uncertainties, no glossing over, no intentional minimization of facts or softening the message in hopes of protecting your feelings. I don't want to be vague. We don't want there to be any confusion regarding what the moment you take your last breath is going to look like, the the moment your heart stops beating is going to look like. It's too important. It's the most important thing in your life. So I want to tell you this morning exactly what that moment will look like and then what your eternity will look like so that when you stand before your creator, you stand there without excuse. And I want to do it out of love and and a genuine concern for your everlasting soul. I want you to be saved from the fate of King Herod uh, and all unbelievers throughout the millennia. I, I don't want get some weird pleasure about standing up here and telling everybody about hellfire and brimstone. Frankly, I'm looking forward to next week's text about James and, and the moment that he went into eternal glory. But I'm, cont- I'm, I'm compelled to tell you the truth. I have to tell you the truth. I have to tell you what scriptures teach about the other side of the gospel, what People have called the dark side of the gospel. We have to tell you. Woe to the pastors of this church if we don't tell you the full gospel. The grace, love, and mercy of our creator, yes, but the horrifying reality of what awaits those who do not bend the knee to Christ in this life when we know full well that these people will bend their knee to him in the next life, right before they are sent to eternal conscious torment in hell forever. Woe to us if we don't tell you this while you're sitting here. And someone will say, well, he's just trying to scare us. And to that I'd say, you are absolutely right. You should be terrified. I want you to be scared. I want you to be petrified. I want you to be terrified at the reality of what awaits those who don't believe. I want you to be terrorized by the thoughts of hell. I want you to be in borderline despair over the thoughts of coming judgment and the wrath of an infinitely holy God. Like Paul, knowing the terror of the Lord, I want to persuade you I want you to panic over the certainty of what awaits those who do not trust in Christ alone for salvation. And then I want you to trust in Christ alone for salvation. I want you to see it It doesn't have to be this way. I want you to realize that the mere fact you're still alive only serves as a demonstration of the patience and the forbearance of the one who created you, who 
the one who would be absolutely justified in striking any one of us dead at any moment, who would be absolutely justified in casting us out of his presence forever and ever, but he doesn't. He's slow to anger. He's not wishing that any would perish, but we should be afraid of hell. We should be terrified of his wrath, his retribution. We should be fearful of a perfectly holy and righteous judge. In fact, Jesus said it himself. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. So so why wouldn't those within his body, certainly the so-called preachers of his word, say that? So that's the second reason. I want us to realize what's at stake here. I want you to be terrified at even the thought of going where Herod is right now. And then I want you to cry out in desperation to be delivered from that reality. And really what's super relieving to me in this is ultimately it's not my words that will change your heart or or even change your mind. It's the word of the Lord and and it's the spirit of the Lord. So that really goes back to the first point. We we can freely tell people the truths of God's word, the whole counsel of God's word without feeling like it's our job to save them. It's not my job to save you. Or, or to manipulate you into making some confession or to praying some prayer to walking an aisle or raising a hand. We just have to be faithful in our proclamation of the gospel, the full gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says about death. All right? I'm just going to tell you. That's what we're going to do this morning, and Lord willing, next week. Here is what your creator, the one who gave you life and sustained your life, says about your death. Do you want to hear it? That's what we're going to do here. Here's what he says about your eternal destiny, really whether you believe it or not. Uh, The title for this message this morning is, What Happens When an Unbeliever Dies? Notice that's not a question there. It's not a mystery. We know what happens when an unbeliever dies, and it's straight from the very source of life, the very author of life himself, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 3. I want you to see this in your own Bible here. John chapter 3. This will kick off our outline for this week, and we'll touch on it again next Lord's Day. Uh, In John chapter 3, Verses 16 through 18. This is what Martin Luther called the gospel in miniature. The gospel in miniature. Verse 16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. This is very familiar to us, but we have to keep reading here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Here is the very author of life himself (coughs) describing the destinies of these two men, James and Herod. He says, whoever believes in the Son of God will not perish. One preacher said this word perish should make every sinner tremble. Perish does not mean annihilate or cease to exist, but to cease to have an opportunity to fulfill the purpose for that, uh, for what they had been created. So they were created for a certain purpose. They're no longer able to fulfill that purpose. To perish means to be rendered useless, to be destroyed for one's original purpose, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They no longer have an opportunity to do that. Now, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son 
will not perish. Then he says, whoever believes is not condemned or judged or separated and determined to be rendered useless, but instead is saved from destruction and punishment. James is saved, is what he's saying. On the other hand, whoever does not believe will perish, will be destroyed, will not be saved, but is condemned. Herod was condemned. Herod was separated for judgment. In fact, he was under divine judgment way before this moment here in Acts chapter 12. Do you know when he was condemned? Do you know when he was judged? The moment he came into this world. The moment he came into this world. Look at, again at verse 18. Look closely at, at verse 18 here. It says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already. That's the main word for this first point. Remember that word there. I'm not a big fan of writing in Bibles, but you should write it somewhere. And, and we should know the significance of this word in our, in our witnessing to people and telling them about the realities of eternal life and death. What Jesus is saying there is that divine judgment is placed upon sinful men and women, which we all are, and were from our birth, really from conception, as David says in Psalm 51, but from our birth into this world, we were born under the curse. And this curse was brought on by what? Sin, that's right, sin. Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. You shall surely die. Genesis 3, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The world is cursed. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We were born into this corrupt and cursed world full of sin and disease and decay and death, and we were born into this corrupt and cursed earth, all of us full of an inherited sin nature. We're all in the same boat here. All sinned, and the condemnation or the judgment of God was placed on us at that moment that we were brought into this cursed earth. Not after all the things that we did. Not after the bad things that we did. Not not after the transgressions that we partook in ourselves, but we were condemned already. Nicodemus, the guy Jesus was talking to here, he he would go on to be a believer in Christ, but he sat there this moment in John chapter 3 with his creator, a condemned man. He he was condemned from his birth. We all need a savior from our birth. And, And while I believe that the Lord shows certain graces to infants and young children who die, the majority of us will will grow up remaining in this position of condemnation until when? until there is now no condemnation. No more condemnation for who, though? For those who are in Christ Jesus. And who are those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, up in verse 3, Jesus says exactly who they are. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And who are those who are born again? those who believe in the name of the only Son of God. We have to be born again because the first birth in life didn't go so well. The the first birth put us under a death sentence. The wrath of God was upon us, so we need a new birth, and we need a new life in Christ, which he gives to all who will obey him by what? And believe in him by what? Faith. All who will come to him by faith, uh, genuine and sincere faith 
in his name, his true nature, his true person, his true purpose. If you do not believe in Christ as he has truly revealed himself to be in his scriptures as both Lord and Savior, you remain in that state of condemnation. He says you are condemned already. So Herod, he goes on living his whole life already condemned, and, and the angel smites him with this illness, causing this infestation of worms, ultim- ultimately resulting in his undergoing physical death. And he dies. He, he begins to expire from this earth. Point two in your outline. Now, one thing that's common among all unbelievers is that they will experience physical death. Every unbeliever will experience a physical death. A believer, on the other hand, might be raptured without experiencing physical death. There's more on that next week. Uh, But the believer, the unbeliever, will surely die. Every unbeliever is going to die physically speaking. They will get sick with something, some sort of virus or cancer, some sort of organ failure. You get an aneurysm or a, or a blood clot. You could be w- here one second and gone the next. You may be in some sort of car wreck or you may drown in a boating accident. You could die of starvation. Or you could, cho- you could choke on a piece of food. You could go any way. You could, you could be a casualty of war. You could be murdered in cold blood like James was. You could be shopping in Belmar this afternoon or you could be walking around downtown Denver tonight and get a bullet hit you, the bullet of a madman goes through your head. You could be swept away in an environmental disaster. You could, you know, or your heart could just get exhausted. It could just stop beating. Nobody knows. Actually, experts say if you ignore the many circumstances leading up to death and simply consider the proximal mechanism itself, there are basically four different ways to cause total and irreversible loss of brainstem function. Okay, there's four ways you can die, basically. Oxygen starvation, high temperature, a chemical toxin, or physical damage. Those are the four ways that doctors say you can die. Now, I'm no doctor. I'm not an expert in human physiology. But even a schmuck like me knows this much. (laughs) These bodies, they weren't made to last forever, right? They're cursed. We're living in a cursed environment. Have you ever been around somebody on their last days on earth? Have you ever been around somebody who is actually dying? Like, like seeing somebody on their last moments here on earth. Or have you ever seen the body of somebody who just died? It's, it's not pretty. It's not, it's not natural. It's not comfortable to be (laughs) in that environment. It's not glorious, I'll tell you that much. It's not a good thing from our perspective anyhow, but on the other hand, it's so common. It's so common. It's just incredible to me that no matter how much death a person sees, they then just go on living in this world all the while ignoring the reality of their own mortality and their own imminent physical death, which could come at any time for a number of reasons. They can just go on living without giving any consideration to what will happen next, or worse, they will be willfully ignorant to what their creator has just told us in John chapter 3. I would encourage you all to think about death. Think about your own death. Okay, think about it often. Ask yourself, what will happen that very moment you pass from this life to the next? Think about it. Don't find yourself uh, unprepared. It could literally come at any moment. John Sedgwick was a general in the Union Army in the Civil War, the American Civil War. He saw many engagements, was, was wounded by bullets three times, but it was, he was seemingly immune to fear. On May 9, 1863, while in battle, a group of soldiers warned him to take cover The same men would later go on to give a report of his very last words on earth. Quote, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. You have that picture up there? I like this one. They couldn't hit an elephant at that distance. 
Because it's at that moment, the bullet of a sharpshooter came and got right below his left eye and killed him. Just died. Here one moment, a second later, eternity. All of eternity. So that's the physical death of an unbeliever. And just like a believer, before the rapture anyhow, it could literally come at any time and happen uh, under any circumstance. But while this body wasn't made to live forever, and thank God it doesn't, the soul of a man will live forever. Remember what its maker said, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In Matthew 25, speaking of the unbeliever, the unsaved, the unrighteous, Jesus said, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now look at that. The author of life in that one statement describes the destiny of the souls of these two men, and the word that he uses for both of them is eternal. Eternal. So let's go back to that moment with Herod. Last beat, last breath. That moment then begins or marks the beginning of his eternal and spiritual existence. Herod has, just like everyone else, a soul that is everlasting. A soul that won't cease to exist upon death, but a soul that will go to a place which, again, Jesus describes in Luke chapter 16. Jesus actually tells us what that moment was like for Herod. Turn there with me. Luke chapter 16. You've got to see this in your own Bible. You can't just take my word for it. I'm not, I can't just read it to you. John 16. And Luke 16. Thank you, thank you. See? Don't trust me. That's what I'm saying. I might turn to John 16. This is why it's good. You've got to go in your own Bibles. Luke 16. Though John 16 is very good, very good. We're going to start at verse 19. Okay, Luke 16, verse 19. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came, licked his sores. The poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. None may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No. He said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The words I want to focus on this morning are Hades, uh, torment, and agony slash anguish. We, we could really spend all year in this chapter the, the great reversal of two men, the, the chasm, the spurning by... Abraham, the brothers, the sufficiency of Scripture, but for our purposes this morning, let's just draw our attention to those words there. Hades, torment, agony, and anguish. Jesus says, the rich man also died, and he was buried, and in Hades. So, when an unbeliever dies, when your unbelieving grandmother or grandfather dies, your 
unbelieving mom or dad or sister or brother, when your friend or neighbor or classmate or coworker dies, that very moment they take their last breath, their final breath, they will go to this place, Hades. When you die, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you remain in your condemned state without believing in the Son of God, just as he has told us, you will go to this place, Hades. It's very important to note here, this word Hades is separate from the word hell, which we'll look at in a moment. This is not the same place as Gehenna, or the word where our word hell is derived from, which speaks of the eternal state, the the final destination for unbelievers. We'll look at that in a moment. That's the lake of fire. Now, while this place, Hades, could be considered a type of hell, here it's simply the name of the place where unbelievers like this rich man will go temporarily. Okay, it's like a, it's like a holding tank, a holding place. Now, just as we can't get Hades confused with eternal hell, which are both real but separate places, we also can't get this confused with purgatory, which is not a real place, uh, but a heretical and damnable false teaching. There is no such thing as purgatory, where unbelieving, unrepentant men and women will pay for their sins for a certain amount of time before being freed and allowed entrance into heaven. It doesn't exist. They will pay for their sins, to be sure, but there's never going to come a time where they will get out. Never going to come a time where they will be freed. We'll get to that in a moment. Again, uh, Hades is the intermediate state of an unbeliever. Their eternal destiny has already been sealed at their physical death. But for now, they're occupants of this temporal destination where the now disembodied souls or spirits of unbelievers await their bodily resurrection when they will stand before the great white throne judgment and give an account for how they lived. I don't want to get ahead, though. More on this place, Hades. Okay, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus began to denounce the cities that he had been to, which they, which they did not repent including Chorazin, Bethsaida. At one point he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So not only does this show us that there are levels of severity of the punishment experienced in the final state, but it also leads many to believe that Hades is below, okay, and heaven is above in the heavens. It says you will be brought down, you will descend into Hades. So what's it like down there? Again, every unbeliever throughout the ages is there right now. We'll talk more about Sheol and the realm of the dead and Abraham's bosom or paradise next week, but let's just center in on the the living condition here in Hades. Again, I want you to look at the word torment in verse 23. Okay, it's the word basanas, meaning acute pain, affliction, torture. This is a conscious and and cognizant suffering. It's it's an intense, never-ceasing distress and sorrow. That's what makes it so terrifying, this conscious, nonstop torment of the soul, the soul agony, he says, the soul anguish in verses 24 and 25, which speaks of the severe mental and emotional affliction, which is obviously accompanied by uh, physical torment as well. As The tormented soul of this rich man describes feeling the flame, needing a drop of water for the tip of his tongue, I don't know if this means that people are given temporal bodies in Hades or what, but I do know they're under severe affliction here. They're under continual anguish which, with absolutely no hope of escaping. No second chance of repentance. Dude, no second chance to repent of your sin. It's not like you're going to be there and then just say, oh, you know what, I changed my mind, let me in. It just doesn't happen. There is no annihilation. There's no ceasing to exist after a certain amount of punishment. No, none of these things. Just an immediate, instant, and continual anguish of your everlasting soul as you're separated from the common graces and mercies of your Creator. 
when an, when an unrepentant and unregenerate person dies, they immediately find themselves consciously aware that they are in Hades, that they're in this temporary place, this temporal holding tank, this place of agony and torment with no hope of pardon. This is where the rich man of this account was. That's where Herod Agrippa was. The moment he died, he's in this place. That's where every unbeliever in the church age will find themselves the moment they die. That's where they'll stay until the very end of the world as we know it. Then, after this, comes the really terrifying part. And you're thinking, good night. Let's get back into Acts here, Acts 13. I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation 20. Now you have to understand, everything up to this point in this book, Revelation 20 from um, chapter 3 on, is described, it's, it's future, okay? It's the end of the world. It's, uh, from, from chapter 3 on, it's, it's to a time that hasn't happened yet, even as we're speaking. But all the while, remember, Hades is fully operational, okay? Hades is fully operational. It's continuing to be filled day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, and and by the time we get to this 20th chapter, we, we will have passed the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation period, the second coming of Christ to the earth, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. We'll have passed the literal 1,000-year reign of Christ upon this earth and even the battle of Armageddon with all unbelievers who have ever lived and died, the multitudes of unbelieving, unrepentant men and women, their souls going down and being in Hades, okay? Going to that same agonizing torment that that rich man experienced. But for now, I want you to look at verse 11, okay? This is the next chronological event for the unbeliever waiting in Hades. So they're waiting down there for this moment. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. This is literally a descriptor of the end of the world as we know it. Peter describes it in the third chapter of his second epistle. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that were done on it, were done on it will be exposed. That's what John describes right here in verse 11. Earth and sky fled away. No place found for the earth and sky. Just like that. Everything we've ever known, gone. Gone. Then John says in verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, who are the dead? Those who were not born again, remember? Those who do not have eternal what? Life. They don't have eternal life because they're dead. The unbelieving man and woman, the one who we've been talking about this morning, the one Jesus talked about in John chapter 3. Now, John says in Revelation, these same souls, the same souls of the, the dead, the condemned, were now being judged, not just for their unbelief as they were from, from their birth and in Hades, but now, in verse 12, they're judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done according to what they have done for every sinful thought that they've ever had, they will be judged. Every sinful word, they will be judged. Every sinful deed, they will be judged. Every secret sin in the darkest crevices of our hearts, those sins that nobody else knows about, those sins nobody else knows about, they'll be judged for on that day. Here at the great white throne, those sins will be brought to light. They will be completely exposed. The hearts of men will be found to be completely naked. No righteous garments to cover them or conceal them. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known. Come to light. Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom, uh, to whom we must give an account. It must be this way. 
It has to be this way, for God is holy, holy, holy. We just sang it. He is is perfectly holy. He is perfectly righteous. He's perfectly just. He must punish sin. He must punish every single sin of every single person who has ever lived. Every single sin must be paid for. The sin of every soul must be atoned for. The wrath of God must be satisfied. And it has been satisfied for some. And it will be satisfied for others. For unbelievers. The sins of man have either been punished or pardoned in the death of Christ on the cross at Calvary where he willingly took the place of sinners and became a curse for all who would believe, uh, being separated from his Father for the first time in all of eternity so that we wouldn't have to be, or they will be paid for throughout eternity by those who refuse to cry out to the same God for the salvation and reconciliation he provided through the death, burial, and resurrection of his one and only Son. But either way, they will be paid for. And John reaffirms this truth in verse 13. He says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And there you go. All these unbelieving souls who were in the torments and anguish of Hades are now standing before this great white throne. And I don't know what it looks like. I know it's great. I know it's white. I know it's a throne. (laughs) Other than that, I don't know what... I also know who is seated upon this throne. Who's sitting on this throne? That's right. The very same one they rejected and scorned and mocked is now their judge. Acts 10.42, Peter says, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17, Paul says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This man that God appointed, he also raised from the dead. Paul told Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word, Timothy. In Romans chapter 2, he explains, it speaks of this very moment when he says this, the work of the law is written on the hearts of men, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. By who? Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And who is this judge? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that they may honor the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. They were born again. They were in Christ Jesus, and there is therefore now no condemnation. Here at the great white throne, we see the exact opposite. They pass from temporal life into eternal death, everlasting death. And then these great volumes were opened and and the one appointed by God the Father sits in the place of supreme judicial authority to render judgment upon all those who are born into and remained in that condemned sinful condition. All those who had not been born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. 
proving for us once for all that there is no such thing as works-based salvation. But there is such a thing as works-based condemnation or damnation. In other words, none of us are saved by what we do. Do we understand that? We're not saved by what we do. Man is not saved by the things that we do, by being a good person, by being religious or holy, but man is condemned to hell by what we do not do, namely by not believing in the name of the only Son of God. And we see that condemnation, that judgment, that eternal punishment for sin happening right here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It's interesting. Christians are born twice but die once. Non-Christians are born once but die twice. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, we'll talk about that next week, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm just telling you what it says. This is the lake of fire, hell. He tells us up in verse 10 how long this would last, right? Look at it. What does it say? Amen. Thank you. Forever and ever, which can only mean these disembodied souls will at this point be given a body built to withstand that same torment for all of eternity. Now, we're all going to get a new body. Did you know that? Every one of us in this room, we're going to get a new body. The question is, what is its purpose? Next week, we're going to read about the believer's glorified body. Okay? Here at the resurrection of the dead, men and women will also be given a new body, but it's a body fit for destruction. But it's an everlasting, repeated, never-ending destruction. A new body. Okay? This reminds me of an Oprah episode back in 2004. Not hell, but I don't, I don't know if I actually watched it. But anyway, you remember that one. You've seen the clips where she gave everybody a new car, a Pontiac G6. And she's walking around and she's saying, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Everybody gets a car. And everyone's hooting and hollering over what? Some Pontiac G6. All the ladies, they get their car. Some were crying. Some were hysterical. They were jumping around. There's a big sign behind them that says, your wildest dreams have come true. You got a new Pontiac. You know, I looked at the Kelly Blue Book of this particular model. I, I put, listen, I got one that only has 10,000 miles. It's fully loaded, mint condition. Guess how much you can get for that car today? 3,500 bucks. 35, mint condition. 2,000. 3,500 bucks, though. <laughs> now, let me tell you this, okay? You get a new body. 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 Everybody gets a new body. But unlike these Pontiacs, these bodies won't fail you. They're never going to fail you. So I want you to ask yourself while you're here, and I want you to be absolutely certain of which body you are going to be getting. Which body are you going to be getting? Which eternity will that body be equipped for? If you believe in the gospel of his son, you will be given a body built for eternal bliss. Eternal joy. Eternal comfort and glory in the new heavens on the new earth. If you don't believe in this gospel, you will be given a body built for eternal torment, eternal anguish, eternal agony in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. Forever and ever. Which leads us to the final point this morning. We've seen the condemnation of an unbeliever set apart 
or uh, set upon them at their birth. We've looked at their physical death, and then that very next moment, the intermediate state and the torments of Hades, only to await their final judgment and the sentencing at the great white throne. And finally, now we see their eternal destiny, their second death in hell forever. To say the thought of eternal hell is a terrifying one would be a massive understatement, but it's a reality whether you believe it or not. And who is the one who spoke most about eternal punishment? That's right. The same one who will be seated on that throne dishing it out. The Lord Jesus Christ. I went to this church my, when I was first saved. I didn't put this in here, but I went when I was first new believer, early 20s, I went to this uh, little Baptist church down in Inglewood. And I remember if you came in on the south entrance, they had this big picture, probably like that size, of this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, okay? And he had little lambs all around him and kids all around him, and he was going like this. And we called him Touchdown Jesus. <laughs> but now, Jesus is very, you know, he's meek. He has a power under control. Uh, he's loving. He's merciful, merciful. He's gracious. He has all these things. But the Bible also reveals him for his true character, the full character of Christ. And he's the one who's seated on this throne, and he's the one that spoke more of hell than anybody. R.C. Sproul said, the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell is not pleasant, but you cannot accept Jesus and reject hell because he taught it so plainly and frequently. The fact is that virtually every statement in the Bible concerning hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. We cannot take Jesus seriously without also taking seriously what he said regarding eternal punishment. We have to remember that other side of the gospel, that, that dark side, not just what we are saved to, but what we are saved from, that, that dark side. And to neglect to do so, certainly in the world's eyes, diminishes the necessity for a savior. Why do we need saving? What, so we can have a better life, a balanced checkbook, a great marriage? That's what, that's it? One, comment, well, one commentator said this. He said, too often people are invited to come to Christ so that he can fix up their lives to make their marriages better or provide health, wealth, and prosperity. But this is not the message of the Bible. We come to Christ for forgiveness of sin. The very presence of which in all our hearts is a sure one-way ticket to hell. Quote, a balanced biblical message consists of the reality of hell a warning to escape it, and the only way to do so through the shed blood of Christ on the cross for our sins. Christ, who said the, heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down. They, they sorted it, the good into containers, but they threw away the bad. Then he said the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Eternal punishment? Eternal life. Eternity. This life is nothing. The Bible says it's a vapor. It's been said, you walk outside, you start talking, you can see the mist coming up from your mouth. That's what the Bible says this life is like. And yet everyone just is obsessed with this life and prolonging this life without giving consideration to eternity. Eternity. The great Puritan Thomas Watson said, eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. But eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's man in the iron cage cries, Oh, eternity, eternity, how shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? How am I going to meet this? How often do you consider your own eternity? Not your wife's eternity, not your kids' eternity, not your cousins, not your coworkers. I want you to think about yourself right now. 
your own everlasting soul. How often do you think about eternity? Again, Watson preaching on Revelation 14, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Wrote this, Oh, eternity! If all the body of earth, if the whole earth and the sea were turned to sand, and all the air up to the starry heaven were nothing but sand, and a little bird should come every 10,000 years and fetch away in her bill but a tenth part of a grain of that heap of sand, what numberless years would be spent before that vast heap of sand would be fetched away? Yet, if, and at the end of all that time, the sinner might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But that word ever breaks the heart. That word ever breaks the heart. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. So you've got torment, anguish, agony, gnashed teeth, worms that do not die, fire that is not quenched, a reference to the Valley of Hinnom, by the way, where the Jews themselves, along with pagans, sacrificed their own children to Moloch. Later, it was turned into a garbage dump and a place for the rotting carcasses of animals and criminals who they had executed, criminals of society. This was a place filled with fire. It was always on fire, filled with maggots, stunk. But that's different. The fire of this Gehenna, Jesus said, this hell will never go out. The worm will never die, ever. Terrifying. Perhaps even more terrifying than all these things combined, however, is the hopelessness of an eternity void of the love and fellowship of your creator. And the tragedy is, for most uh, in this world, that hopelessness begins here and now. Even, as, even now, as unbelievers, they live in a world full of his common graces, the sunshine, the, the rain, relationships, laughter, prosperity, art, music, nature, even living in a world where sin is... R- restrained from being as bad as it could be, from not completely dominating. And yet, they live out their whole earthly lives and then die without any hope of enjoying these things to their fullest extent, all because they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul even calls them those who have no hope, those without hope. Uh, John MacArthur, speaking on the reality of, uh, realities of eternal hell, said this, What if everything in your life was as bad as it could be? Take everything bad that has ever happened in your life, roll it all into one experiment, and make it permanent. All the pain, all the disappointment, all the failure, all the hatred, all the bitterness, all the fear, all the anxiety, and experience that to the full, then add the fact that you have no hope. It will never get better. Such knowledge would compound and exasperate you exacerbate your suffering exponentially. If you were in the severest torture and the most profound, relentless torment physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, and you were suffering in all those things at the same time, you knew there would never be one moment of relief and that nothing would ever change. He says, I just described hell. It is the place of the most profound suffering compounded infinitely by the realization that it lasts forever and nothing will ever change, end quote. My friends, my brothers and sisters, you've heard this morning from your creator, from the words of your creator, what your death will be like. That moment when you die You've heard the realities of the life to come straight from the source of which he has sovereignly preordained for you to hear him, his inspired word. He sovereignly preordained for you to be here this morning, at this time, hearing this message from before the foundations of the world. You are supposed to be here to hear these words and hear this plea to not go to hell. Don't go to hell. There is hope now. 
There, there is hope. It's the greatest hope the world has ever known. It's the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the hope. There's the promise. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ Jesus our Lord who said, come to me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Christ Jesus, our Lord, who said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Christ Jesus, our Lord, who said, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Come to the Son this morning. Look upon the Son this morning. Believe on the Son this morning. Place your everlasting soul into the hands of the Son by trusting in His gospel this morning, and He will save you from eternal death. He will raise you up to new life, eternal life, in a place where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sin, no more death. Lord willing, that's what we'll spend our time looking at together next week. Amen? All right, pray with me, and Noel and the team will come up here and lead us in one last song. Lord, we.